When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 186, Professor John Grout, former business school dean and researcher on mistake-proofing. Well, I'm glad you called it my, my favorite mistake because my favorite mistake actually isn't kind of my biggest or worst or any of that. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is a place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about John Grout, including a link to his free publication on mistake-proofing in healthcare, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake186. And now, on with the show. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. My guest today is Professor John Grout. He is the former dean of the Campbell School of Business at Berry College in Rome, Georgia. He's currently the chair of the Technology, Entrepreneurship, and Data Analytics Department. And he's the David C. Garrett Jr. Professor of Business Administration. So John is overseeing the development, approval, and implementation of Barry College's Creative Technologies Program and Barry's makerspace called Hackberry Lab. So before I tell you a little bit more about him, John, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Mark. Nice to be here. So um, John, I want to tell you a little bit more about his background. And, and you know, I think when you hear this, you'll know why I invited him to be here today. He's researched something called mistake-proofing extensively. He's published numerous articles on mistake-proofing. In 2004, John received the Shingo Prize for his paper called The Human Side of Mistake-Proofing. And he's also consulted with a large variety of uh, companies to mistake-proof their processes. And he also published uh, an ebook that's freely available online. I'll link to it in the show notes. I recommend it. Whether you're working in healthcare or not, it's called Mistake-Proofing the Design of healthcare processes. And his, his uh, website is mistakeproofing.com. So John, you know, with uh, the different things you've done in your career and uh, you know, different departments and, and things you've done, I'm curious to hear your story. What is your favorite mistake? Well, I'm glad you called it my, my favorite mistake because my favorite mistake actually isn't kind of my biggest or worst or any of that. Um, my mistake was um, one that I actually try and commit whenever I can. Um, the The circumstances was that uh, our our creative technologies program was having a contest where we had um, PVC pipe, pool noodles, and zip ties, and we were supposed to create the tallest tower that we could. So very similar to a lot of kind of engineering exercises or team building exercises that are out there. And um, I came to it, uh, since it was out of my department, and I'm department chair, I was thinking, I'm just going to let them do it. Uh, But there was a math professor and a physics professor who showed up 
with their teenage boys and they were going to try this out. And they said, oh, you should do it too. And so I kind of said, all right. Uh, So I jumped into it and started building. And within about a half an hour, I had a structure that was, oh, about 18 feet tall. It was super simple because PVC pipes, 10 foot lengths, had it up there and then started to add from there. And what I found was that when I tried to take my um, tower and stand it up, that it would bend and those bends would invariably break uh, all of the mm. um, connections that I had for this tower. So, you, so, were, so to, you were building it kind of horizontally along the ground and then trying to tilt it up. Is that right? Exactly right. And uh, very early on, I discovered that that did not work. Mm. And that's my favorite mistake, is the, the idea that if you make a mistake early, it's low cost, you can recover from it, and things turned out great. Now, I was actually trying to not win this competition, because I don't think it's really comely uh, to sponsor an event, and then win it. Um, now, one of my colleagues was administering the event, so I really didn't have any official responsibilities. But I felt like, you know, it would be way better if a student won, a, won the prize. The prizes were not, you know, glorious and fantastic, and it wasn't anything like that. But I did feel like certainly someone will beat this. So I worked on my tower. Um, found out that you couldn't stand it up, but rather you had to build it up. And so uh, I got a couple of the lab assistants to help me pick the tower up, put the next section underneath it. And we did that twice and we were up about 35 feet. I thought that was a respectable showing, um, but didn't want to blow the competition away. The problem was no one else figured out that you couldn't build it horizontal and then stand it up. And it was a three-hour exercise, and I was done in an hour and a half. <laughs> Two yeah. and a half hours into the project, everyone was starting to think about standing up their projects, and they all broke, mm-hmm. every single one of them. Yeah. And so they had a half hour to try and resolve the issues that they had found. And so I was really lucky because I made – a mistake that helped me understand the material I was working with mm-hmm. early in the process. Yeah. And I tried to make it as simple as possible. So an accidental victory that was born out of learning from an early mistake. That's, that's such a great story for what we talk about here in the podcast all the time. Yeah. So, you know, it was, a it, it taught me, because we always talk about kind of a design process where you build a prototype and you iterate and you try and make mistakes early. And we, we talk about it. And at that point, the program was relatively new and I hadn't really understood the power of that methodology, which is that you try stuff and you try lots of stuff to see what's going to work and what's not going to work. And you do it at a scale where if it doesn't work, you don't care. And it seems like you could frame this as a design lesson or an engineering lesson. Since you're in the business school, uh, I'm guessing you might agree this is also an entrepreneurship lesson. Like I, I can think of, like most recently, um, one of my guests, Emily Leering, 
she's a family therapist. She wanted to start a very specialized childcare program for kids and the parents who, who needed mental health support. This was not intended to be the run in the mill daycare. Well, the phone was ringing off the hook when she announced she had a daycare, but guess what? It was people wanting just basic, typical needed daycare. So I, you know, I think the one takeaway from her story was that she was starting this as a home-based business mm-hmm. and the risk or the, the, the cost of then shutting it down of realizing she wasn't finding what she thought her target market was, that was a, a far less costly uh, mistake than if she had rented space and she might have felt trapped into trying to make that work, even if that wasn't what she wanted to do. Yeah. And I, I think for lots of businesses, if you started as a side hustle, that's the least risky way to do it. Now, I'm not saying that everything can be done that way, but if you can do it as a side hustle, um, that would be fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, have, can you think of, um, uh, you know, without naming names, of course, you know, students or people that you've mentored who were maybe being a little too stubborn instead of, you know, like maybe, you know, too stubborn and not recognizing that early mistake that could have saved them a lot of time and expense down the road. Oh, yeah. And surprisingly, it's the A students. Mm. That's the not surprising a- to me. <laughs> the a- Well, I wish it weren't that way. Yeah. But the A students think they know how the world works. And so I had a young woman in one of my very early prototyping classes where she wanted to use uh, rainwater coming off the roof to do, to generate electric power. She was going to put a little uh, turbine on there and have it spin. And I said, you know, okay, how much electricity do you think you're going to get? And how do you think that's going to work? Mm-hmm. And um, she says, oh, this is this will work fine, you know. And oh. I said, I don't think the physics are there. I don't think that there's enough going on. And by the way, if this worked, why would it why would it have never been done before mm-hmm. you know part of me says a lot of smart people have thought about everything in this world yeah at one point or another and so i think that you know we're pretty convinced at this point you can't take lead and make it into gold and <laughs> sure and i said you know i i don't want to squelch people i really mm-hmm. think people ought to be able to to learn for themselves. And so I told this student, you've got to get this up and running in the next week and a half and figure out if it works or not, because I don't think it's going to work. Well, you know, supply chain issues came up Mm -hmm. and um, she didn't do her initial hello world experiment Mm -hmm. until, you know, 10 weeks into a 14 week semester. She finished with a project, but it was a completely different project. She pivoted entirely away, which she should have done in week two. Mm -hmm. But when you do it in week 10, it just doesn't end up looking near as good. And I think there's this definite trap. um, and, And when I said, I wasn't surprised that it's the A students, the A students are used to knowing the answers, right? So it's one thing to understand how accounting works. Like we can know double entry bookkeeping if we wanted to, right? But 
knowing like that, that knowing trap. And I, and I think this applies to continuous improvement or to entrepreneurship, knowing versus experimenting. Like you could have a hypothesis and that what I hear you saying, different words is, well, go test that hypothesis as soon as possible to validate or invalidate and move on or move forward or back off or adjust. Right. Yeah. So, um, Reese, uh, who is his first name? Um, can't think of it. Um, but there's a book called The Lean Startup. And it's Eric Reese. Yeah. Eric Reese. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. Eric. Um, it's all about the scientific method. Mm-hmm. And I actually gave that book to my college president, and he read it and he says, Oh, I never understood how business and the scientific method went together at all. It's like, now I get it. And so, you know, it really helped us in terms of being able to communicate because he understood that we were using the philosophy of science, all of it, to think about how we run businesses. And so that was a big help for us. Um, But yeah, if you look at any self-improvement technique, so if you look at... um, the lean startup, if you look at the scientific method, if you look at lean manufacturing or um, PDCA or uh, the DMAIC of Six Sigma, um, all of those at the end of the day involve having a theory, generating data, analyzing the data and acting based on that data. And so everything at some level that will lead to improvement is the scientific method. And what we're talking about is doing that that cycle of learning much faster. So then there's the cycle of learning that you describe in that competition. I think it's interesting that it seems like the other groups, like were you all working out in the same space where other groups theoretically could have watched you make that mistake and then learned from it? Yeah, so we were in a quad mm-hmm. um, and the, the quad, like any college quad had... Um, sidewalks running all across it and everyone had a four foot square taped off on the sidewalk and so yeah all of the the furthest tower away from me would have been less than 50 yards and so we could all see what each other were doing and interestingly when push came to shove in that last half hour they all looked at mine which had been standing there for an hour <laughs> right and they said Let's do some of that. And so it's <laughs> some last minute and, benchmarking. And and they got close to my height, mm-hmm. but they didn't quite overtake me. I kind of wish they had, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to have a good showing and have some student win. And I I couldn't get there. And it's because I had some knowledge that they didn't have and actually developed some techniques for holding together PVC pipe that were only relevant in that particular circumstance um, that they had not developed. But you, you use the word knowledge and you developed, I mean, you learned that, right? right? You learned from your experiments. Like if everyone starts off at the same level of knowledge, I mean, there's some who say, you know, the, I mean, maybe it goes back to Darwin, the business that is most adaptable to change, meaning the one that learns most quickly um, actually, you know, this, this makes me think of like, you know, Peter Senge and learning disciplines of like, really the only differentiator is how quickly do we learn? Yeah, absolutely. 
And I have to say, it was a point of pride for me that I bested a really good math professor and a really good physics professor working together on what was going to be a beautiful, um, sophisticated tower. It was amazing. And it, they couldn't get it uh, from horizontal to vertical. It fell apart. And what, what you're describing, you know, <clears throat> sounds like a, a fun, larger outdoor activity, a variation of a similar competition of using uncooked spaghetti and marshmallows, or at least two of the main ingredients of that same challenge of like build the largest tower you can in certain time constraints, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was called the Grand Challenge. And I think that the, um, the organizer just scaled all that stuff up. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think one of the takeaways in the write-ups I've seen of the spaghetti tower building competition is it's said, this is probably true, kindergartners will outperform MBA students. And I said, I have an MBA, so I'm, I'm not trying to throw stones outside of <laughs> my field. But, you know, they say the kindergartners were not afraid to just try things and to make mistakes where the MBA students have maybe this uh, analysis paralysis of we are going to think our way to the right design and then build it, as opposed to building, failing, learning, building again, moving on. Yeah, so Tim Hartford uh, has a TED Talk from 2012 where he talks about the God complex and trial and error. and that's exactly what he's saying is he's saying, look, do trial and error. Don't think you know what's going on until you actually know what's going on. And I would, I would agree with that. It turned out to be very powerful for me on the, the grand challenge. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, kind of a final thought, you know, about that competition or that approach that again, like, you know, it makes me think of entrepreneurship and even improvement within an organization is that doing these small tests of change is a way of mitigating uh, or preventing larger mistakes. Like of, right. of the knowing and the bad assumption. I'll just you know, share one example, and I'm sure you've got examples to share of. Let's say somebody in a hospital has an idea and they, they want it uh, that involves buying something that they would have at every patient bed throughout the hospital. So now if they've made a bad decision, if they've made a mistake, it's the cost of that times 300 and they might have to eat the cost. And I remember sort of asking and challenging, well, what's a smaller test of change? And they said, well, we could try it on one unit. I'm like, well, could you go smaller? And they're like, we could buy one. We could see how it works on one bed and then maybe move on from there because there were all sorts of risks of what we didn't know. Could this thing be cleaned? How durable would it be? Would people use it? It was like meant to be a way of helping patients not let their glasses and their phone and things fall onto the floor. Yeah. You know? But I think that small test of change presented, prevented the big mistake where then people feel stubborn of like, well, I can't admit that, admit that was a mistake. Right. You're too invested at that point. Mm -hmm. And that's a real problem. So there's a hospital in Wisconsin uh, that's part of the Theta Care, which it may have changed names now. I think that it was acquired. Um, but they were in an old, old facility. And they actually tore two patient rooms out of the building, took it down to bare walls, and they put in one prototype room. It was just wallboard. There was no spackle. I mean, it was just really rough. But they then kind of put in light fixtures. They put in the bed. They said, we think we're going to have the bathroom over here. 
on the head wall, which makes it way better. Um, and they had people, everybody in the hospital could come in and there were papers all over the wall where you could say, I like this or, or I hate this. And here's what we should do about it. And so they had had everybody in the building tour this one patient room before they built any other patient rooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when they said, we hate this, they could go in and change it because mm-hmm. they had, you know, a couple of two by fours invested in it. Yeah. And so to my mind, that's the way to go. Um, I've seen a lot of organizations, and this is spread into healthcare, of doing what we might call rapid prototyping, of using cardboard or you know metal with plastic sheets or, or something that's not concrete and drywall to test the layout of a facility. And you can simulate, you can push a real hospital bed with a real person in it and make sure like, can we actually get around that corner radius of the hallway? Mm-hmm. Um, if we have the, the workbench and an exam room set up, does our hypothesis of, well, now the, the provider doesn't have to turn their back to the patient. Like you could go and test those things and it's, it's far, far less expensive um, to, to, to change cardboard than it would be to rip down drywall and, and concrete. And we're less wedded to that idea when it's cheap. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Kaiser Permanente has a warehouse in an industrial part mm-hmm. of Oakland Mm-hmm. where they do exactly that. Yeah. They'll have whole um, offices mocked up inside this building. Yeah. Um, Chick-fil-A does this. Uh, they were bringing out a new facility in New York City, and none of their existing designs would match kind of the cramped, expensive space in New York City. And so they built a foam core um example of what they were going to build in New York City um, in a warehouse just uh, off of their corporate headquarters in uh, South, let's see, that'd be Southwest of Atlanta. So yeah, lots of people are doing little experiments first. And so I think my goal, you know, with students, we always call it hello world Mm -hmm. because it's a programming thing, right? Yeah. It's a programming thing where if you're going to learn a programming language, the first thing you need to do is be able to write three lines of code, compile it, and run it, and have it actually do something that you can predict in advance it will do, which is send a message to the screen that says, hello world. And so, you know, some kid comes up to me in the creative technologies program and says, I want to build a hovercraft. And you say, well, so tell me what your hello world's going to be. What, what are, what's your first project going to be? And how can you get it done in about a week or a week and a half? Because if it takes longer than that, you'll never finish. Yeah. So it could be a mistake to take on some sort of challenge like that. Um, and again, you know, I think we can do some things to either, if we're not preventing, we're, well, you know, maybe we're, we're preventing big mistakes by making small mistakes. I think there's a, a good lesson there. Theta Care, I think one other quick example a story I've heard from them. They had an idea about the need to provide transportation to patients. Um, and, and, and the initial concept was, well, we're going to go buy a fleet of vans. But somebody had the sense realized to say, you know what, we could, we could rent a couple of vans and see if anyone actually calls for them. And then if the experiment didn't play out, you just stop the rental instead yeah. of being stuck with vans. Yeah, that makes lots of sense. Um, 
And this is a little bit of a stretch, but I think of uh, Adam Savage from Mythbusters. He wrote a book that called that's called Every Tool is a Hammer. And in that book, he recommends that when you are wanting to try a new tool, that you always buy the cheapest version of the tool that you possibly can, take it home, use it. If it breaks, you've learned something. If it works and you love it and it fits your workflow really well, then you go buy out, go out and buy the best tool you possibly can. But at that point, you have an understanding of what best means to you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think that physical hammer idea could apply to software. You could, like you're trying to solve some challenge in your business. Like we could go buy a software platform, but maybe we can start testing something kind of quick and dirty. We realize it's not going to be scalable or we might build something in SharePoint and see if we can make the business process work around it. Would people even use it and then go buy a better fitter for use hammer perhaps Yeah, in software? It really suggests that there is a... um... There is a a disruptive option for um, enterprise resource planning systems, you know, because typically you have to invest so much up front on those and then hope they work. You know, it seems to me like if anybody brought something out that was that, just try us out and here's where you do it. And then you could build it out slowly instead of having to flip a switch on the whole thing. Um, uh, my local hospital, they're switching over um, their, all of their electronic systems are going to uh, something called Epic. And they're going to throw a switch one day and hope that their organization still works. And, you know, it's it's a big risk. If there were any way to do that, where you didn't have to have this 100% all at once cut over, Mm -hmm. it would be so much better. Yeah. And, And so much more comfortable. And, you wouldn't have the horror stories that you hear. Yeah. So let's, um, John, talk about mistakes. You know, as somebody who has studied and researched and written about this um, for so long, maybe we can kind of go through some definitions um, as you you, you have on your website, like what, what you call the strict definition of the word mistake and then a more common definition. Can you kind of talk us through those and your thoughts on on that? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to get linked up with um, some folks who were doing cognitive psychology and looking at mistakes from a psychological perspective, and they call them errors. And then among errors, they divide it out into mistakes and slips. And mistakes are those errors that you make where you deliberate about what to do and draw the wrong conclusion, and then you do what you've intended to do, but it doesn't turn out quite right. And so um, a doctor misdiagnosing a patient would be an example of a mistake. Um, They then talk about slips, and slips are where you deliberate about what to do, and then in your execution, you've got the right intent, but you do the wrong execution, and that's a slip. So... um, they, they, they break it out that way. Now, there, there are finer ways to do that, but it's a good starting place. So another example might be the mistake of uh, choosing to do a surgery that other surgeons might consider to be outdated, and then you do maybe the, the wrong surgery really well versus choosing 
what others might deem to be the correct surgery and then cutting the wrong ligament or something that was unintended. Yeah, exactly. In the process. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the distinction. And I think it's really useful because your response is entirely different depending on which one you're doing. And And ironically, ironically, when, when I study mistake proofing, which comes from the obscure Japanese quality control technique called pokoyoke, mm-hmm. uh, when you do that, you're really working on slips, not on mistakes. And yet when it was translated mm-hmm. into English, they translated it mistake proofing. And, you know, once those cats are out of the bag, you really can't fix it. Yeah. Uh, so there's but, this hierarchy, and I'm glad you clarified that because... What I hear you saying is error is kind of the highest level in the taxonomy. And then that breaks down into mistakes or slips. And I've heard and I've probably actually used mistake proofing and error proofing as synonyms. And that's probably not technically correct. Well, I think that, you know, technically mistake proofing shouldn't be mistakes. Um, So I think I I try not to be um, a stickler about those kinds of things. If you say error proofing, I go, oh, yeah. Mistake proofing, pokeyoke, error proofing, all the same thing for me. Um, if you want to get down into the details of cognitive science, then yeah, there might be a difference there. Now, there, there might be different settings where it's easier to prevent a slip and some settings where it's easier to prevent a mistake. Like thinking of um, like a surgery setting, like you may have you know some sort of clinical review board that maybe helps prevent somebody making the wrong clinical decision. But then once you're in the course of surgery, you you might not be able to guard against or or prevent the slip of like, oh, my hand moved unexpectedly and now I've cut the wrong ligament. But you could slip proof or mistake proof slips of uh, somebody handed you the wrong um, size implant for a knee or somebody handed you the wrong medication to administer to a patient. it seems like it's maybe very situational. And how, how do you think through here? I'll try to phrase it as a question. How do we decide? How do we think through if something is preventable or not? Yeah. And so I think that you can make inroads both on mistakes and on slips. So you can, if you make a mistake on the intent or if you make an extent, a mistake on the execution, I think there are ways to address both, but they're different vocabularies that you use. And so for slips, there are, there are lots of ways to do it. The way you know that you've got a slip is that you know the answer in advance. And so if you know the answer, like that's right or that's wrong, and you know it before you ever get started, that's something that you can mistake proof or it's a slip that can be resolved. And generally speaking, those are relatively easy to fix um, using some some very traditional kinds of mistake proofing tools. Um, and so there's a, a bunch of examples in the book that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So if you want to know more about that, that book will walk you through it. Yeah. And there, I think it's fun to think through real world examples. You mentioned Chick-fil-A and I'm trying to think if Chick-fil-A does this. I know for sure In-N-Out does this. There, you know, the food comes in a plastic tray. And um, they don't have to put up a sign that says, don't throw out the trays because the, the whole 
in the top of the garbage can is literally too small for that plastic tray to even fit. You can put your papers or food waste. They, I would call that, I think, good mistake proofing, as opposed to restaurants where I've been at where there's just a big open container. And then instead of saying, thank you for coming here, it's like, don't throw away our baskets. Right, right. And of course, the feel is entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also true that, you know, you have lots of situations in industry and elsewhere where you use checklists. And checklists are a mistake-proofing device, but they're like the weakest one ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you go to Pello Windows, and they actually have a little board laid out where all of the different uh, fasteners that go with the window go into that board. There's a bright light behind it so that if there's something not there, it blinks at you. And once all of the parts are there where you don't see the light, you flip the thing over into a funnel that puts it in a plastic bag and away you go. That's a much more effective kind of surrogate for a checklist than just looking through a bag of hardware and checking off that they're all there. Because normally workers will fill the bag and then go check, 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 check. (laughs) Right. We've all seen. And at that point, it's not doing its job. I mean, I've had a checklist for running webinars and a checklist for podcasts. And where I've gotten trouble is when, guess what? I didn't use the checklist. I thought I knew how to do this now without error. And then you get a little bit cocky and like, I don't need it. And then, oops. And that's where I think in surgical circles, they really emphasize like it, they do this in aviation. You always use the checklist, no matter how many consecutive conse- uh, successful takeoffs you've had, always follow the checklist. Right. And when they get into trouble, it's because they didn't follow the checklist. Now, the way to know if you have a good checklist on your hand is if it speeds you up. And so like when I'm packing for a trip, I can spend a lot of time thinking, now, did I get everything? Do I have everything? Um, But if I use a checklist, I can go down the list. When I get to the bottom of the list, I go, I am done. And um, provided that, you know, after years of travel, that checklist has been refined to a just it's 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 well done and I have a lot of faith in it and uh, the only thing I have to attend to in terms of my own mental capacities is is there anything unusual about this trip where I need to bring something that I normally don't bring and then I write that down and when I'm done I know I'm done means packing for almost any length trip is 15 minutes to a half an hour at the most yeah well I think that's a really interesting point about a good checklist should speed you up because that's one of the the concerns or the pushback you'll get. You know, I think of the popularity of checklists or attempts at making them popular in healthcare. Uh, Dr. O'Toole Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto. And um, there's this concern of uh, we don't have time to follow the checklist, which is an odd argument of like, well, you, you don't have time to do it right. And that's a little bit troubling if people are, are, but it sounds like it doesn't have to be either or. You can have a good checklist that doesn't slow you down. Right. And the longer the checklist, the more doomed to Mm. death it is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, you know, Peter Provenos did a lot of work in the state of Michigan that led up to Dr. Mm -hmm. Gwandi's book. Right. And he has really good evidence that's statewide evidence that if you think you don't need a checklist, um, at least in that case, he's really shown that that's not true. Uh, the, the checklist makes a world of difference. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you. The checklists are not 
the, the most effective, 100% effective form of mistake proofing. I think even weaker than a checklist is what I call uh, the awareness signs or the be carefuls or the cautions. And so like, oh, well, if, yeah. if those worked, we would hang signs in every operating room that said like, you know, be careful, don't operate on the wrong side of the patient. But that sign, it's like the, I wouldn't believe the hypothesis that that sign would help. So that leads me to the conclusion that human performance can only be improved on a marginal basis. You know, if you need a 5% improvement, you may be able to get that from a human being by telling them to be more careful, but it's going to be transient. It's going to, you're going, it's going to wear out. Um, but then you've got this Sisyphean task of trying to keep people aware all the time. And that's just not the way the human mind works. And so it is so much better to make a design change to allow that mistake to be revealed without trying to improve the person. And, you know, if you do that, if you can create a design feature that will help people understand that that's wrong, don't do it, that's going to work. A, it's a finite investment that's going to be made and be done. And you get to amortize it over however long you do that project. So it's very affordable and it will be effective in the long term. Whereas those signs that say, be more careful, Mm -hmm. will blur into the background of people's lives very quickly. Yeah. And I think of maybe just one other example I would share. I think of, you know, error proofing within the realm of software. Um, I have uh, at least a couple of times uh, booked a flight for the wrong date. It was probably more of a slip than it was the wrong intent. And, you know, there are attempts, like there'll be a screen that says, is this what you're intending to buy? And it's very easy just to gloss, gloss over that. And so, well, of course I'm buying what I clicked. And then you find out maybe a week later, oh, I did that wrong. And now you might be hit. Well, they, they're not doing change fees right now, but the fare might be higher. There might be a penalty to oh, that. Yeah. yeah, it could be very costly. Um, so. But I think a better form of error proofing when I think of you know paying a credit card statement a bill either on a website or an app, I've also made the slip of accidentally paying a, uh, a bill three days late. And now I get hit with a late fee. And now I'm getting hit with interest charges when I was intending to pay it off on time. And part of me thinks, well, maybe it's not in the credit card company's interest to prevent me from paying it late. But I, I think now, um, more recently, I, you know, I think of different apps where it basically brings up a, very, a couple of very quick options of pay now pay on due date, and then to pay on some other date might require a few extra steps. But I feel like that's at least better error-proofing or maybe auto-pay would prevent yeah, that. Absolutely. But, oh, and by the way, when you want to delete a file, how often do you click? You <laughs> click the file name, you click delete, and then it says yes or no. And you, no one goes back and says, oh, no, wait a minute. Do I really want to get rid of that file? You've already made that decision, and now you're just executing a schema, a subroutine yeah. that involves clicking the yes button. Well, if it's delete, though, at least on most systems, there's a good undelete. The problem, the mistake, the slip I've made is the pop-up that says, do you want to save changes, yes or no? And I'll click no. And I'm like, then those are lost forever. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, why did I click in the wrong place? Uh, such is the human condition. <laughs> Yep. 
But, you know, your intent is pretty well fixed at that point, and you're executing on that intent, and your deliberation was wrong. It's much harder to, to mistake-proof that. But there, there might be a case, just thinking through where, let's say if there was a keyboard shortcut, these dialog boxes that pop up, often if you hit the, the return key, it chooses one. It's probably better to choose, if you were to hit the return key, for that to activate the yes to save, because then you could always cancel out of that. If the default, if hitting the return key was like, no, I don't want to save, that might be unrecoverable. Yeah. So one of the things that you find about good design is it's really hard to get right because there have been times when I've made a change to something and I had an archival record and I pulled it up and I wanted to make a change for the new version and I saved it under the archival file name. And then again, you've lost your data. Um, So the trick is you don't know if you really want to save the changes or if you don't want to save the changes. And so that one is much tougher. And a lot of these techniques are very subtle. And, you know, making a good mistake-proofing device ought to be easy, but um, you find that when you get into the nitty-gritty of it, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of care. And you really ought to experiment to see if it does exactly what you want it to do because you can cause troubles as well as fix troubles um, when that happens. Now, if the trouble that you cause is much less than the trouble you're fixing, that's probably a good thing. I mean, I take aspirin even though I know that it could cause a stomach upset. It never has for me, and so I continue to use it. And it's way better than feeling the pain. And I think of one other, maybe just one other example here. You think of, let's say, uh, a gasoline pump for your car versus a diesel pump. People could go and try this. It's impossible to accidentally put diesel into a regular gasoline vehicle because the nozzle is bigger. You could accidentally put unleaded fuel into a diesel vehicle. But my understanding is that putting diesel into a gas engine would be far more harmful. So they've chosen to error proof it in that direction. Yeah. I once had a diesel Volkswagen that um, uh, a young man who was a friend of mine wanted to borrow for the prom. It was back when the new beetle was brand new and it was just the thing. And I had one and he wanted to drive. He drove a classic beetle, which he traded us for uh, 24 hours. And I said, the one thing you may not do is fill this car up on the when, before you return it, because I knew he was going to put gas in it, and it needed diesel. Yeah. Uh, although Land Rover had a fix for that, where the larger caliber diesel nozzle would actually open a clamshell that would keep the gas from flowing into the tank. Oh. So, wow. Um, you get a good engineer involved, and there are lots of ways <laughs> to fix the problem. Interestingly. Oftentimes, the way you fix the problem is by saying, how can I make this process fail, but fail in a way that's benign instead of fail in a way that's terrible? And at that point, all of your failure analysis techniques become a tool to invent something new. And that's kind of a fun process. Yeah. So um, I'll ask one more question before we wrap up. But I'm also just a recollection real quick. There was a period where my wife and I owned one diesel vehicle, one unleaded vehicle, and that co- they were different, but that caused 
a lot of mental stress of thinking, you know, I managed to avoid that mistake, but I'm, 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 I'm glad maybe an electric vehicles in our future, but now we're back. No diesel, just unleaded fuel. Yeah. It's just one less thing to worry about. So when you get your electric vehicle, then you can have range anxiety instead. Um, <laughs> the mistake of thinking I plugged the charger in, but it was a slip, so I didn't really get it right. So every, I happen to own a, a, a plug-in hybrid that's all electric in the sense that there's no drive shaft in the vehicle. There's only electric motors. Um, and everybody I, I talk to says, you know, sooner or later, you're going to forget to charge your car, you know. It's going to happen. And so, um, yeah, it, it's an ongoing concern. Although the same is true for your phone. I find that charging my electric car and charging my phone, same process. And I happen to do them both at the same time because routine is another way of reducing error. Just getting it to be an, a, a, um, a subroutine that you call every night at 9.30 you plug in your phone, you plug in your car, you go, you know, you go to bed if that's what you do at 930 at night. So. Yeah. Um, so, John, I want to ask one other question. This comes back to terminology again. Is it a mistake to use language? We hear people say these things, um, foolproofing or idiot proofing or dummy proofing is another one I've heard. So I understand what all of those mean. Uh, I choose to translate those as mistake proofing. Uh, I'm not sure I would ever correct someone if they said idiot proofing, but I think that, you know, in Japan, when they, they started out with baka yoke, which was foolproofing and a worker took offense. And I just think we live in a world where offense is easily taken and it's costly. And if you don't cause offense, it's so much better. Um, and so, you know, have I seen the little uh, signs that say, uh, if you foolproof something, the world would just come up with a better fool. Um, yeah. You know, I just, it, it's a headwind I don't need. Sure. And so I choose to not correct people on that. Um, but I also choose to not use those terms. Sure. Fair enough. So everybody makes mistakes, even professors, even professors who study mistakes and mistake proofing. So our, our guest today. I'm, I'm not just a researcher. I am a customer. <laughs> so our guest again uh, has been um, John Grout from uh, Berry College in Rome, Georgia. I do recommend his website, mistakeproofing.com. And again, especially if you work in healthcare, check out uh, the publication, Mistake Proofing the Design of Healthcare Processes. That's a, a PDF that you can find freely available online. So John, thank you for those materials. And, and thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Well, again, thanks to John Grout for the great discussion today. To learn more about John for links and more information, look in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 186. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.